We're in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'll read from it in the New American Standard, a good enough English translation to give us a start and a kind of an overview where we're taking um, Paul's instruction to Timothy about what it's supposed to be like in the local church in Ephesus. The local church is probably in Ephesus. What's the order of, of, uh, of service? How are we supposed to conduct ourselves in the household of God? I think 1 Timothy 3.15 may be the theme verse of the epistle. I'm not sure that every letter in scripture has a theme verse, but we're often looking for one that'll kind of summarize the contents. He says, but in case I am, wait, that's, yeah. But in case I'm delayed, I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself and the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Last time we went through in a very blistering pace, the relationship between uh, the functions of men and women in a general sense and the assembly of the body of Christ. When we locally assemble, what are the, what's the mixed group of men and women supposed to be like? And we saw one of the key passages in scripture that is opposed by all those who will tell you women, if not interchangeable with men, are not being given their due. We're, we have the passage in 1 Timothy chapter 2, which says, for example, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet in 1 Timothy 2.12. And I've taken the verse out of context by not reading all of chapter 2, but what it says is what it means there. What, that's just simple language, but that's what it means. Women aren't to have authority over men. So specific teach, general, have authority. And that's how we operate. And the reason he says it, as we saw last week, is because of creation order. But I'm, I'm bringing you back into what we're talking about in 1 Timothy because uh, he's telling you how, you're, how the church is supposed to function. There is probably no clearer um, place that this material is taught than in the pastoral. We call them pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy, especially 1 Timothy and Titus, the three pastorals to, to individuals writing to Timothy and Titus. Now, some people think the only verse in 1 Timothy is 2.12. The only verse about women in ministry is 1 Timothy 2.12. And that would be a horrible misunderstanding because Paul will conclude women will be pre preserved or saved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and saint with sanctity and self-restraint. I started this morning my weekly harangue by saying... Uh, there's nothing more important that we do than making disciples of our children. I think the decline of the honor, the exaltation of motherhood in our culture, the exaltation of the privilege and the honor of this very challenging, life-consuming task, the idea, well, why would you go to college if you're just going to you know, raise kids? That, that kind of insanity. The problem we have in our culture where we've denied the awesome value of this task of making home and training children, I think is reflected in your culture today, where I was recently informed that something like 70% of young, young voters are considering socialism and Marxism. They've been taught by their surrogate mothers. They've been told that what we were given here is illegitimate and we have to do something better. You know, like they tried in China and, and Russia and everywhere else. When they didn't get it right, we'll get it right this time. It's a training problem. And guess what? The, the, the problem, what, what killed our country, 
past tense, what killed your country, whether we've, you know, whether, whether the, the branches have all withered yet, but what's killed the heart of the thing is we have lost control of the training of the children. We have delegated it away and the children do not serve God culturally. I'm trying to, to dramatize for you to, 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 to show you how vital 1 Timothy 2 is and why it's salvation, it's significance, it's the great, you want significance in your life, it will not be in your career. Whether you're a man or a woman, that will not be where your significance comes from. It'll be in your service to God and the edification of the saints. However, you can be part of that work, part of that mission. The Lord Jesus gave his church to make disciples by an, an evangelism process ending in baptism. You'll make disciples by teaching those baptized to keep all that Jesus commanded. And what's your piece of it? The ladies, you're not going to be in the pulpit. That's not God's design. But God, guess what? On the, on the other hand, gentlemen, let's go down there and teach the three-year-olds. Usually when men ask, can we teach the three-year-olds? We start looking at them pretty close. We start being suspicious of them. Not that uh, there's anything wrong with serving God and training. I love little kids. But when men gravitate towards that ministry, I think it's a, very similar to women gravitating towards the pulpit ministry. There's a problem. Now that may be very controversial to you, but my point is men and women are different and little kids are different from adults. I mean, I'm keep, people keep telling me this. I'm not so sure about that, but keep, people keep telling me. I hope I'm being clear. We have roles and they're vital and they're all important. And the, the need of the time is not to say, well, I'm not anything because I'm being relegated to the training of children. That's the most important ministry. If you, if you're really going to look at uh, long-term sustainability, <sighs> should we really play the com competition Genesis 316 game and say, what's more important? No, it's, it's a, it's, it's an organism and we need all the organs to work. We need the whole thing to function properly. And so that's what, that's what Paul is appealing for when he tells Timothy, this is the order of things. Now the women and men difference extends because of the fall, but also because of creation. Remember Genesis, I'm sorry, first Timothy two thirteen. it was Adam who was first created then Eve or creation order in terms of, of, of authority. And the second reason is because it wasn't Adam who was deceived, but the woman who was deceived. And I don't think that this means that um, we're supposed to look down on women because they're made differently. It means that we're supposed to not try to work them into the role of men because they are made differently. And there's a reason why Satan in perfect environment with perfectly sinless humans went after the woman. And that's what he's saying in uh, 2.14. I've got commentators that I love and respect that say, no, no, it doesn't mean women are more easily led. I think it absolutely means that women by God's design are more responsive to, to an initiation. And that's, that's the nature of things. I'm not saying ladies, you're all a bunch of passive people. We all know passive males. We all at times are passive males and need to wake up and start and snap out of it. What I'm saying is that there is a creation order and there's a complementary relationship between men and women. And, and to go through first Timothy and not remind you of this is to miss one of the most vital uh, places that will save you from the cultural rot of your, of your time. We really need to opt out of what the world does because everyone does it. And we need to ask what does God want us to do because of how I'm made. And that's the difference between politics and principle. That's the difference between pop culture and the propositional truth. And so we're very countercultural. I know I'm very, uh, I mean, you're, 
this is a dinosaur conversation I'm having. Nobody thinks this way anymore. Have you lost your mind? I, I've been asked that all my life. And the truth is, the more I disregard what the culture and the world around me thinks in order to hear clearly what God says, so that I can speak into the culture, God's truth, the more I've regained my senses to think like God thinks about these things. There are going to be people that are going to hear what I'm saying and hear sexist, bigot, whatever. And for them, I will just say this. And hopefully you can help others too, especially you ladies who understand real womanhood and how powerful womanhood is. You, you have an incredible power in Titus too to help other women that don't get this about how awesome and vital your role is that God has given you. To them, I will say, there is nothing you will ever touch, do, modify, improve upon, build, erect, construct, lead, guide, or direct that will last for eternity, except human beings. In other words, you will never build a city. You'll never forge a business. You'll never carve out a career. You'll never make a legal case. You'll never do anything that lasts forever, except human beings and the propagation generation and elevation of human beings. And those human beings that God uses us to make, pardon the expression, biologically, those human beings that are the product of, by God's design, a marriage last forever. Nothing else that you can touch lasts forever. You say, wait, 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 wait. Your body dies and it goes in the ground, but your spirit, according to 2 Corinthians 5, goes to the presence of the Lord. So you can't say that that person completely lasts forever. And then we say, keep reading. Because it is this body that after it dies is raised again into an eternal body. It's reformed and it's this body. And Jesus is recognizable in his resurrection body. No, the people that you are raising, the people that you are helping others and encouraging others as they're bringing up these children, those human beings are going to go on forever and ever and ever. And here's the horrible thing about that. Most of them are going to endure eternal conscious torment and separation from God as they have their entire lives desired because of Adam's fall, because of our rebellion against God, because they haven't trusted in the only name among men given whereby we must be saved. You understand what I'm saying? It's not just an appeal for child evangelism, but it certainly is that there's nothing more important than we do. So when we relegate womanhood to lesser because, well, they're at home or, well, we can't see them or whatever the thing is that people do to try to destroy mankind in the satanically motivated reduction of womanhood to interchangeability, equivalency with manhood, we just have to reject it. We just have to say, my scale of values aligns with God's design and I know that's where the goods are. And then we need to have compassion on people that they can't see that. They think you're an idiot. They think I'm an idiot. Well, I probably am, but not because I agree with Paul on this. We need to have compassion for people that can't get hold of this. It's okay. I mean, it's sad for them. It's okay. They hate us. It's okay. They think I'm, I'm spewing hate by saying, don't destroy your life by trying to be interchangeable with something you can't be interchangeable with. Well, let's move on. That's my introduction. Let's move on to the passage before us in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. 
overseers and deacons. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a new convert so that he will not be, um, he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and into the snare of the devil. First Timothy three, one through seven pastors love to preach on the things that they are supposed to have qualities that make them qualified to be overseers. It's one, it's our favorite thing. I, this is my second favorite sermon to talk about after, you know, cause we talk about ourselves and everybody's like, is he really all these things? We like to do that. And we also like to talk about giving because that's where, uh, by God's design, we receive our income. So we love to tell you to give, 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 because actually we don't like to talk about that at all. Um, pastors that really want you to pass the plate three or four times. I always say, take a closer look based on the list in first Timothy chapter three, which let's do that right now. I'm teasing you a little bit, but, uh, this is a challenging passage, very humbling. And I have to admit to you that there are times when I don't meet these criteria. And I have to also say that you, by coming here and uh, allowing me to pastor here with you, uh, are saying, in general, though, yeah. So I appreciate the vote of confidence. Maybe after I teach this more clearly, you'll say, wait, 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 wait a second. We've got some questions and uh, certainly we'll be accountable to you. Now, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, pistos halagos is the way he starts. And it's a common thing Paul says. He says it several times, which is, uh, it's a trustworthy statement. The saying is faithful is really the Greek uh, grammar there. The saying that I'm about to give you is faithful. Here it is. Here's something you can take to the bank. Here's a trustworthy statement. And this is, was a big surprise for me. I was very excited and I might spend most of my time on verse one. No surprise since I don't want to actually get into the list. I'm just kidding. But um, listen to verse one. It says, um, Atis episcopes oregetai kalu ergu epithume. And you don't know what probably any of that means. And if you do, you probably know I messed up some pronunciations and that's okay. But it's a saying. It, listen, this is a saying. And uh, it turns out that in English, the way I thought, I didn't even notice it rhymes. If any man to have oversight aspires would be my translation. If any man, if tis, this tis is... Um, uh, the, the, the word man is supplied here. I put it in italics like the new American standard will do when it's an elliptical, when it's not stated, because this is a masculine pronoun. Masculine pronouns are generally applied to masculine nouns, unless we're being generic, but, uh, we're not being generic because we just read two twelve. <laughs> Why women are not supposed to teach or have authority over men. Now we're talking about those that have authority to teach. So, uh, so when you find a church that says, no, 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 women are elders, you say, um, so you're saying Timothy was only for the first Timothy just applies to Ephesus. It's a local application or some other dodge that the liberals will say uh, is okay. But anyway, if any man is a masculine pronoun, if any man, and then you have um, episcopace, which is the word oversight. It doesn't mean overseer. It means what the overseer does. Now, real quick, episcopos. Epi is over and scopos is to scope, is to see. And that's where you get this word episcopos, is to, to look over, to, to oversee. In Latin, it's supervise. Over, super, vise. 
scope c supervisor and overseer it's the same word wouldn't you rather our church call it the the supervisors no get us out of the cubicle we don't want our supervisors to come to church we'd rather well we'd like them to come to christ but anyway um the point is that this just means somebody who has the responsibility and therefore you have the accountability to uh to to relate to in an authoritative way so here it is, if any man to have oversight, you have to have a verb here because the word is oversight. Now, they will often translate the office of, of overseer. If anyone wants to have the office of overseer, because in context, they're saying he's describing a specific office and he is. But the language says, if anyone, if any man oversight aspires, if anyone wants to have oversight. Now, the word aspire is a, a word that only happens three or four times in the New Testament. And it means that it basically means to stretch forward, to long for, to really have a strong desire for something. And so aspiration, I think, is a good translation for this word. It's not the word that we have as our ambition to be pleasing to him in 2 Corinthians 5, 9. But it is the idea of something one would long for or have a strong desire for. And its synonym is in the next line, epithumia. That is lust in some cases or strong desire in other contexts like today. If any man to have oversight aspires, then to do good work he desires. That's actually what the Greek is saying. Then is elliptical because you have an if, so there's a then. Kalu ergu, good work he desires. Present active indicative, meaning it's, it's a general statement that he wants to have this. It reads like a proverb. I think it is a proverb, and it's how he launches into the discussion of qualifications for overseers. Now, what I didn't start with was the summary overview of the New Testament on overseers and elders and pastors. Like, I didn't take you to 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, where the same person that is pastoring is also overseeing, is also an elder. Language. Presbuteros, elder. Episcopos, overseer. Poimino to, to pastor or poimane pastor or shepherd. I didn't take you to that passage, which gets all three of the words that we use to describe this function. We're talking about those who rule as, as it were, or lead in the church. I didn't take you to the, uh, we could talk about a lot of places, the, the elders of Ephesus that meet the apostle Paul on Miletus on his way um, to say farewell to them in Acts chapter 20. Lots that we could be said that could be said about this, uh, this doctrine, but I want to take you exegetically through this central passage on the topic. Now, here's what I think the thrust of Paul is on this proverbial statement. I think we have missed something when we say, if anyone wants to be an elder, it's a good work he desires to do. I think it's better said, if you want to do this, it's going to be a lot of work. If you're wanting oversight, you're wanting work. You're wanting a, a labor that's going to be your responsibility. It doesn't mean it's bad to desire that. It's just to understand what you're getting into. Let me unpeel that a little bit. Let's talk about good work in the New Testament. Good work in the New Testament. I recently heard a challenge that uh, the Christian life is not a life of works. Because after all, it's a life of grace and faith. And so it's not works. Because we've misunderstood Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is followed by 10. We didn't bring 2, 10 into it. That... We're created in Christ Jesus by grace through faith. We're created in Christ Jesus unto good works that he prepared before and that we would walk in. Now we're not sanctified by the works of the flesh, 
But as we're being sanctified by the work of the Spirit, He's working His works in us, and therefore we are choosing to do them, and it is a life of work. So sometimes theologians argue about language, but this is the language of the New Testament, good work in the New Testament. The word in our passage in 3.1 is kalos and ergon, kalon and ergon in the, 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 the neuter. Kalos is, is one of the two words in Greek for good, and it means good like attractive. It can be used to mean good of, of moral value because morality biblically is attractive. But I'm just saying the base word is it's more like pretty than righteous in terms of what the word basically means and how it's used. So a beautiful piece of work would be what you'd say when your kid finally learns, are your kids learning cursive? When they finally learn to spell their name in cursive and they do a good job with it, that was a beautiful piece of work. That's what Kalos Aragon is, Kalon Aragon. Kalos is good in the sense of attractiveness, okay? And it can be applied to things that are morally good because of the attractiveness of moral good. And ergon is your stock word in the Greek for good or for work or a deed. It's something done, something that you do, something that's been done. Let me borrow from the standard lexicon on New Testament, the third edition of Bauer, Donker, Arndt Gingrich. Um, it's the old Arndt Gingrich, but it's been updated. And there's been a lot of research by a lot of German, mostly German scholars uh, to generate basically four different senses of ergon of work. Four different that work or deed or production. Um, and it's a big word, 174 times in the New Testament, this word occurs. So there's a big theology to develop from it. But a lot of times it's talking about Christians doing good works. A lot of times the New Testament has Christians doing good works. If your grace theology doesn't provide for the Holy Spirit to work in you so that you do the works that he prepared beforehand, that God prepared beforehand, then you haven't understood the doctrine in the New Testament of Christian work or Christian production or bearing fruit or abiding in Christ. And while theologians, and I love them, while theologians are wonderful communicators very often and can summarize all day, the first step isn't summary. And the first step is certainly not communication. The first step is exegesis. It's what's the text saying? So let's see how this phrase good works is used. First of all, work in BDAG, the way they think that the Greek, Koine Greek would use this word ergon, this word work. Listen to what these, these people come up with. That which displays itself in activity of any kind. See what I have to deal with that, which displays itself in activity of any kind. And so their gloss is a deed or an action. I don't think that's incredibly helpful, but it's a very broad word that you could use for a work, anything, any action that you take. In other words, that, which one does as a regular activity, like an occupation work or task, like we say, I'm going to work. Hey, what's your work? What do you do for work? You know, that kind of question. Oh, I'm, I, this is my occupation. This is my vocation. That's one use of ergon in Greek, just like we do in English. So in, in other words, think about all the ways you can use the word work in English. You can do this in Greek as well. And so um, guess what? We're heirs of the Greek language in our Germanic English somehow. I know Latin has influence, but it's a Germanic language. All right. That which is brought into being by work, the outcome of the work. That was a beautiful piece of work. What do you mean? I mean the sculpture that you just made. I don't mean the process that delivered it, which was work. I don't mean you unlocked the studio, which is where you work, or it's your workplace. I mean the sculpture that's the consequence of your artistic endeavor. That's your work. 
See, it's a very fluid word. And I think that there are shades of this, all four of these in our passage. For something having to do with something. <laughs> Come on, Germans speak in English. Something having to do with something. I am typing literally what they say in BDA. You could look it up. Something having to do with something under discussion. So that's your broad. The first, the first one and the fourth one are broad. A thing or a matter. So let's, let's play with this. Let's translate uh, verse one of three and these three, three possible meanings. A man who aspires to the office of oversight desires to do a good deed. I don't think that's what this means. That it just, it's a good deed doing the oversight. There's lots of deeds. So I, I don't think that's what he means when he says a good deed, but I think it's related. A man who aspires to the office of oversight desires to have a good occupation. Pretty close. And that's what the, the BDAG people think. They think it's probably the second one, that it's, it's your work. It's your labor that you're going to go do. That's your, your daily work. It's how I live. See, a man who aspires to the office of oversight desires to have good production. I definitely think that this is in view in what Paul is saying. A good outcome of the time you've rendered and traded of your life for the work that you got out of it, the production of your life. And last, a man who aspires to the office of oversight desires something good or a good thing, desires a good thing. That resonated with me. Will, you'll appreciate this because we have other verses that talk about a man receiving a good thing. Do we not? Like Proverbs 18.22. And I thought maybe the Greek is similar in Proverbs 18.22 the Septuagint translation to what we have here. I, I'm a nerd. I do that kind of analysis. And I thought I would show some of this to you because I sometimes have to chase the rabbit. Today, I actually planned on it. Another good thing verse is Proverbs 18, 22. In the King James, it saith, whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing, which I don't think in today's English is very complimentary to wives. I mean, you're good, but I wouldn't say you're a thing. Uh, I mean, we're about to have a uh, resurrection Sunday. It's almost like an Easter egg. Oh, good. I found one. Um, <laughs> hey, whoso findeth a wife, findeth a good thing and obtaineth favor of the Lord is the King James translation of Proverbs 18, 22. I'll assume that we're trying to work with the Masoretic text. If you go with the Septuagint, the Greek translation that for in the uh, 200s BC, if you go with the Greek translation of, by the rabbis of their Hebrew text, you end up with a completely different sentence. And I think they're wrong. I think the Masoretic is probably right. But I want to show you what the Masoretic says. In the Hebrew text, Proverbs 18.22 does not call you ladies a thing. It's actually very terse and it's beautiful. I had to look this word up, terse. It's not more terse, it's terser. Anyway, little details. Matzah Isha... Matzah tov. Isn't that beautiful? That's the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. Matzah isha, matzah tov. Or matzah isha, matzah tov. And then you get the vayiktol. Vayafek, vayafek, ratzon mi Adonai, from the Lord. All right. What does that verse say? He finds a wife or he's found a wife. It's a, it's a perfect tense in its conjugation. It just says third person perfect. He, he finds a wife or he's found a wife. He finds good. Ladies, you're not things. And I know that's not what the King James divines <laughs> meant when they translated that way. 
I thought, I went and ran this down. Like, who else said this way? King James. So I went and, of course, looked up Wycliffe from the 1300s. He just says, he who findeth the wife findeth good. I'm like, wow, let's stick with Wycliffe. But everybody else copied the King James and in Proverbs 18, 22, who finds a wife finds a good thing. Nevertheless, the point is that good is always, in the biblical perspective of wisdom, good is always something God gives you. So you find a wife, you found God's gift, you found good, and then you get a vital, which is an and thus, and so, and as a consequence, he obtains pleasure from the Lord. So you consider your wife God's gift to you is what he's saying. And that's straight out of Genesis 2, isn't it? How did Adam get a wife? He woke up <laughs> and God brought the woman to the man. And so this is a beautiful statement about what marriage is, what womanhood is, what man thinks about womanhood. I thought I would say that after my introduction today. He who finds a wife finds good. Now, the, the idiom of the terseness in Hebrew in the poem, he finds a wife or he's found a wife, he's found good. We would smooth that out in our English, right? We would say, if you find a wife, you found good from God. That's what he's saying. But uh, anyway, so uh, in other words, this has a lot to do with Proverbs or 1 Timothy 2 and nothing to do at all with 1 Timothy 3, 1. All right. <laughs> so of the four options for the basic uses of Aragon of work in Koine Greek, according to the best scholars I could find, the, these all sort of have nuances and senses where you could see overlap with what, what Paul is saying about um, doing the work. Remember our verse. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a good work. He desires good work. All right. What is good work in the New Testament? I will take you through all of them. Kalos and Aragon, the way these two words, beautiful and work together in the New Testament. I think there's A through J or L. I think it's nine times. Let's look at it real quick. The first time in the New Testament this is said is in Matthew 5, 16. Matthew 5, 16, the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, let your light shine before men in such a way they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. In Matthew 6, he's going to say, do not practice your righteousness before men so that they will see you because then you've got your reward of people glorifying you. In Matthew 5, beforehand, Jesus, without any contradiction, has said, do your good deeds before men so they can glorify God. So which is it? It's always glory to God. That's the secret. That's the answer in the riddle between Matthew 5 and 6. But it's good works. It's beautiful, attractive works in Matthew 5, 16. Matthew 26, 10, same writer. Jesus, aware of them, this said to them, why do you bother the woman? She's done a good deed to me. This is, as you recall, the anointing of Jesus for his burial. When he says, you'll always have the poor with you. We covered this recently on a Wednesday night. Echoed in Mark 6, 14, 6. The good work, Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She's done a good deed to me. Mark 14, 6. So this is the sense of a good, a beautiful thing that's been done. She did it. She anointed Jesus' head. She expended this very costly perfume that we don't know how she got, but she used it to honor him for his burial. And he said, this was, this was a beautiful thing. John 10, 32 and 33, Jesus says to them, I showed you many good works, Kalos, Aragon, many good works from the father for which of them are you stoning me? The, the Jews answered and said, for a Kalon, Aragon, for a good work, we did not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. 
So how are they using this word? It just means a good deed. Healing the sick, healing the blind, raising the dead, all these good works. That's what he's talking about when he says good deeds. First Timothy 5.10, having a reputation for good works. And if she has brought up, has brought up children, this is putting widows on the list. Widows indeed that are now uh, receiving their full support from the church family and its offerings to God. And therefore she is now serving full time in the church family like the pastors, like the elders, having a reputation for good works. And if she's brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she's washed the saints feet, if she's assisted those in distress, and if she's devoted herself to every agathos, uh, ergon, every good work. And it's a, a synonym for Kalos. It's good, like of intrinsic value. But these words, I'm trying to show you, these words are being used interchangeably. Good works of attractiveness, good works of intrinsic value. They're, he's saying the same thing. Let's don't over specify when the, the Bible doesn't. First Timothy 5, uh, 25, likewise also deeds that are good are quite evident in those which are otherwise cannot be concealed. A lot of good works in first Timothy, the book about how to conduct yourself in the household of the faith. First Timothy six eighteen instruct them to do good. To do good is one word. And it's from, it's like agathopoietes. It's, it's like to do good in one, one compound word in Greek. Agathos is good of intrinsic value. To be rich in kalos, ergon, in, in attractive works. To be generous and ready to share. Titus 2.7, and all these things, you, you Titus, in front of the young men, you show yourself an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine dignified and the things that Titus has to be, to be an example for the young men because the older men are the, the dignified exemplars for the whole family. Titus, you're a younger guy. You be a good example for the younger men. Older women are going to be dignified and exemplars and they're going to teach the younger women Romans. No, it's not what he says. He says the older women are going to teach the younger women to be good mothers and wives and to love their children, to love their husbands and to make home just like 1 Timothy 2. Titus 2 is not about um, the, 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 the Lifeway ladies and all the people you can go read their publications and have Bible studies. That's not what it's talking about. Titus 2 and women ministry is about training women to be women, specifically. You know who's better at that than me? Every one of you ladies that knows what it is to be a woman, a Christian woman, and raise children and, uh, and take care of your family. That's why Paul tells Titus, you equip the older women and, and, and deputize them to go make sure the younger women can get this right. And this is so important that I say it. I know it's like, oh, the culture's not going to allow you to say these things. It's so important to say it because if you don't do this, then the word of God will be, will be blasphemed. It's in Titus 2. If the older women don't equip the younger women to be women, and we listen to the culture and the world tells us that you're interchangeable with men, then the word of God is going to be blasphemed. That's Titus 2. Obviously, it's something I spend a lot of time on, and I encourage you to spend a lot of time in. Titus 3.8, this is a trustworthy statement, like he says before, just like Kalos, or faithful is the word. Concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Wait a second, are you saying that I have to be intentional? about the works that God wants me to do. I have to choose it and be careful to do it. Are you saying that if I believe in Christ and I keep believing in him, then I'm also going to have to, on that basis, take care to engage in good works. 
I thought it would be just passively automatic. I thought I would just grow spiritually and just automatically do the good works. Here's the best I can do for you on that. If you want to be passive in your spiritual life, if you'll take in the word and you'll believe it and you'll trust in God, that's the way you take it in as you believe what God says. If you'll take in God's word and be serious about it and say, as you open the Bible, God, let me know you and what you want from me. Let me be yours in my experience in this moment. Let me know you. And as you believe what you're reading and you read the instructions, you will find yourself wanting to do what they say. And that's the work of God, the spirit in you in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. But wanting to do it, I hope you all know the experience. I mean, I'm sorry that you do, but I think you all probably do know the difference between wanting to do what you're supposed to do and doing it. Ever want to do something that you don't do? Marcel Proust wrote a lot about that in the search for lost time. We have lots of things that we want to do, but we don't just, you know, kind of... Eh. I didn't quite get to it. You know, every list you make with all the boxes, you're going to check off and you only checked off two of them. A wise person recently told me never make more than six, six items in your list. Cause you can actually accomplish that. Anything more you're, you're going to fail. Depends on what, how you make the list, put away the cups and put away the silverware. That wouldn't count. That's one thing. All right. Now you have to be careful. You have to be mindful and intentional about the works that God has for you. First Peter two twelve. keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation. Peter's an apostle of Jesus Christ. We'll do the Christian life of Peter next, right? Peter's just saying what Jesus said in Matthew five sixteen, that your good deeds are a cause for people to consider God. And so it's all mission. It's all on mission. It's all revelatory of God to bring people to the father. And I don't know why I don't have it in the list today, but uh, Hebrews 10, 25, Hebrews 10, 25, that we not assemble, not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. Why? Because we're supposed to be stirring each other up to love and good works. Stir each other up to love and good works. Love would be the motivational virtue. Good works would be the execution from that fountain of that virtue. The fruit of the spirit is love and all that it does. And so love and so good works. Oh, I love you, but I ain't going to raise a finger to help you. That's not love. God so loved the world that he gave love acts. And that's why we're commanded, not suggested, commanded to love and John 3, 13, 34 and 5, the new commandment Jesus gives us. Okay, that's our enough New Testament theology. Let's get back to the qualities of the overseer. I believe what he's saying in verse one is that it is an occupation. I believe he's saying that it is a good deed or a set, uh, is, is a of quality uh, thing to aspire to, but it's also going to be a lot of work. Now, the qualities of the overseer. Therefore, it is necessary that the overseer be irreproachable. All right, I'm out, right? I'm a flawed and broken human being. And I don't rest in that and say, oh, good. I'm just be flawed and be a failure. We don't change the standard because we drop it because we fail to meet it. But this is the, the desire. This is the intention that the pastor or the elder, the overseer would be um, on epileptic, which your Bible might say above reproach. 
It means that nobody can say anything against that person with a tarnished record, with a tarnished um, reputation. That's the idea. Irreproachable is my translation. I did it because that's one word for one word. A one-woman man. I hope this isn't a controversial translation for you. A one-woman man is what he says when he says, Mias gunaikos andra. One woman man. Those are the English words that translate the Greek words. Now, does that mean that I've correct, correctly captured the meaning? No. On, an, an aner or an andros, depending on which noun or genitive, that word means male or husband. There's no other word for husband. That's the word for husband. It means male. Guess what? It goes back to Genesis 2 in our design. Okay, anthropos is human, is a man, but man in the sense of Adam, that we're all human. So a one-woman man or a one-wife husband would be the literal translation of this phrase. And guess what? There is a lot of controversy about what that means. I knew of a, a Dallas Seminary former professor and famous pastor uh, years ago named S. Lewis Johnson, a man, I believe, from South Carolina. And when you hear on the S. Lewis Johnson archive, his sermons, it is fun to listen to Southern South Carolina preach the gospel of Christ. Anyway, I love S. Lewis Johnson. I love listening to him. I love, I love listening to Bible exposition. But, um, but he actually uh, was widowed. His wife passed away. I forget the circumstances. And he stepped down from the elder board when he remarried because of how he interpreted this verse. I would not so interpret it that way. I love him, but I don't think he's right about that. I have a, actually, actually have a lot of things that I would differ with him on. We'll talk about it someday. See, I, I don't think it means that if you're widowed, which is the termination of the marriage contract when somebody dies, that this means you can't have a second wife. So you can't be an elder or excuse me, overseer. I think it means that you have one wife. And I would also give you some perspective, zoom out a little bit on the whole Bible. Look at all the great leaders of Old Testament and New Testament. And one of the great problems that we see in all of our great heroes that we're going to have to sweep under the rug when we're trying to teach kids to be like Abraham or be like David or be like these great heroes of the faith, except for the polygamy. As far as I know, this is your prohibition in the Bible against polygamy. I don't know of another place that says don't do it. I know of a place in Genesis 2 that says this is the design, one man, one woman. And then everybody that tries the other way is, is, is cursed by their doing that. Solomon is, goes into idolatry because of many wives. And we see the problem of this polygamy thing really with Abraham is the, the clearest example of don't do that. How is God going to bring forth the promise through Abraham's machinations? And he's got all these women that are his options like Hagar. Nope. He's a rich man. He could probably, like the pagans around him, take many wives, have a harem. But no, even if you have Hagar, it's not going to be her kid. It's going to be your wife's kid, the one that you married, that you've been with all this time. It'll only be through Sarah that God brings forth the Messiah. Isaac and Jacob and the Messiah will only come through Sarah. God always honors one man, one woman. And I believe this is because, and this is a, a, a principle here, because this is to be, um, we're to be exemplary. This is God's design. One man, one woman. Now people want to say, Does, well, what about divorce? And I want to say, he's not talking about divorce here. He's talking about a one woman man, a man married to one woman. That's my interpretation of it. It's not popular in a lot of Baptist circles. 
I love him. I love him to death and I will be taught by them. But I don't think he's saying that a man whose wife, I'll give you a crazy example. Pastor, uh, you know, takes a church, his wife leaves him. And so now he's, what, he's got to go celibate for the rest of his life, like Roman Catholic, because, because his wife made a bad choice. We've got, we've got abandonment in 1 Corinthians. And I, I don't think that's a legitimate interpretation, but I know many that will take it that way. Nevertheless, don't ask me all the, all the test questions. Let's just say we really want to honor marriage and take it very seriously among our leadership. Sober could mean uh, alcohol. It could mean uh, temperament. Sober-minded, sound-minded, sophronos. It's a, it's a synonym to sober. Your Bible says prudent. Well, we Americans need to know what that means. We don't really know what prudence is. Prudent means of sound mind. And that's really the sophronos. That's the Greek word. Respectable. We know what that means. Hospitable. Now this is philo, uh, where is it? Uh, it's philo xenon. Xenos is the outsider, the stranger. Philos is love, like family love. So it's a, it's a lover of the outsider. That's what hospitable, that's where you get the word hospitable. Is that, yeah, I've got my, I've got my perimeter, but I want you to come. I want you to be part of what we're doing. And I do try to model this for you. And hospitality is uh, a lot of energy. It's a lot of work. And those of you that help me with that, I'm so thankful for you. And those of you who've never considered it, I'm thankful for you too, because you're probably going to want to help me with that. So hospitable, that's our, that's our approach. We want to welcome people. We want to help them how we can. And, uh, and we want to help them along because that's how the gospel advances. Skillful in teaching is my translation of didacticon. Didacticon is based on didaskalos or to teach or didasco to teach or didaskalos teacher. And um, I had a friend once say, all these are able words, um, uh, respectable, hospitable. Why isn't it teachable? So that the elder is somebody that can be taught. Isn't so arrogant that you can't teach him. You know, the genie in Aladdin, you can be taught like that, that idea. That's not what it means. It means somebody that's a skilled teacher because you can't take an English way of making a noun and put that on the Greek. So, but this is talking about someone able to teach. And if you remember, uh, if you've read this, I'm sure dozens of times, the deacons, the only difference with diakonoi, the servants from the overseers is that they're not called out to teach. They just have to have all these qualities, but they're not teaching necessarily. I would be careful with that having read Acts chapter six. Not given to wine, paroinos, one word, paroinos, para with to toward some sort of relationship to oinos. And so we take it to mean addicted or given to it. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean here that Jesus can't be an overseer from, you know, the, the miracle at Cana. What it means is that uh, you can't be addicted or beholden to something and given to it. I believe most of us agree that that's what he's talking about there. Not a striker, bully, brawler, or pugnacious is an adjective. It's a noun here and it's plectain. Uh, and um, that's a weird sounding word, but I'm not supposed to be the elder. The overseer is not supposed to be, um, spoiling for a fight. The word plectane comes from a, a verb that means to, to hit people, to strike. Dang. So, um, but I think it has more to do with attitude than, than physical conduct. Like if, if I'm generally not pugnacious, but at some point somebody has to take one, uh, for, for protection of others or something, I'm not violating my 
peaceableness to, to defend someone. I'm just not supposed to be spoiling for a fight. In other words, I don't think that, um, uh, <laughs> I don't think that this means that, um, that the, the overseer is not a man, but he's not a bully. Not fond of ice, not fond of dishonest gain. Ice, uh, ice crow is, is two words that basically mean illicit profit. So it means, it doesn't mean that he can't work, you know, and make a living. It means that he's not a cheater. These are sins. But gentle, and this is a word that's new to me, epi-ak, I just read through stuff. And, oh, he's gentle. Pastors are gentle. We're just so gentle. 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 Well, it doesn't really mean that, although we should be gentle for other reasons. But the, what this word means is that we're not insisting on every possible letter of the law and trying to catch you, uh, dropping the standards. We're not, we're not holding you to account for every possible thing. There's a great tolerance. There's a great expansion and, and, a, and a graciousness. We've been forgiven billions, so we're forgiving someone hundreds or something. That's the, that's the attitude of this word gentle. It's in the sense of tolerance. And when I say that, be careful. I don't mean we approve of sin. I mean, we expect people to know better, to do better. And so maybe you haven't been corrected by me a whole lot personally. I apologize for that. I haven't come over and said, here's what you're getting wrong. But partly it's because I'm trying to be gentle. And I don't know where God is, what God is working in your, I'm not your coach. God's your coach, right? And so he'll use me to teach you things for sure, but he knows exactly what you need. And I won't presume upon that. Your spiritual life is really a matter between you and your creator. So I think that's the idea is we've got to have this, this gentleness. I will fight to be broad. I'll fight to be, you know, inclusive as much as we can. And so uh, I think you have to have that spirit or you end up with, um, with clicks and, and pettiness and uh, church splits that aren't necessary. Brother so-and-so used a movie in his sermon illustration, so we have to part company with him and, uh, and pray for him to re- return to the Lord. That's ridiculous. But this also, this gentleness actually cuts down on legalism. I think the most ungentle thing, I think the most violent thing is gossip judging legalism, where my standards need to be your standards or I'm going to judge you that you didn't rise to the occasion of what I expected. Now, we just go back to the Bible and where the Bible says we have to say. Now, that, that takes somebody that you can trust who will um, have that balance. It's hard. It's hard. You have to get a lot of sleep. <laughs> have to go on long walks or runs to get some exercise. Not warlike is actually what it says. It doesn't say this word doesn't mean peaceable. Uh, uh, sorry, Amakan. Makao is to, 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 to wage war. And so it's not warlike. It's an, it's an ah, Makao, not fighting, not a fighter. So it's almost like the not striker, not a brawler. And so I, I could say peaceable, but it, it means not warlike. Now we are at Fort Preston because we are at war, right? But it's a spiritual war where Satan is attacking us in our thinking and we're holding the line with God's truth. And finally, not a lover of money, um, not ah, fila arguron. Arguron is silver or money, and um, philos is loving it. So not a lover of money. Of his household, a good leader, 
That's not the way our Bible says it. It says he manages his household well. Well, it's a participle that is being used substantively. It means that he is a good manager or leader. In this culture today, since we've drawn a distinction between managers and leaders, he's definitely talking about the leader. He's not talking about the guy that just doesn't, you know, he's just like, yeah, you just do what I say because I say or you won't get paid. He's not talking about managers in that sense. He's talking about leaders, what our managers want to be. And the way I know that is because the word um, is proistomy and it means to stand in front or to be out in front. That's what the word means. And so it comes to mean those that lead, those that lead. And he has to do this for his household because he's going to do this for the whole household. He's going to do it for the little household. You know, the, the chocolate chip cookie model of church, the whole church family is the cookie. And then each of your little households is a chocolate chip on the cookie. That's how it works. We're all part of the same household, but I'm not in your personal household. And we respect those chocolate chips. <laughs> okay. He's a good leader of his household with the result. And that's what we're saying here. This having is a participle of result with the result of having his children in submission with all dignity. I was so encouraged when I read this in Greek because I've read it so often that you have to have them under control. And so you get this idea that your children are on remote control. But it doesn't say you have control of them. Of course you do, but that's not what it says. How do you not have control? What's the problem in their little hearts when they won't, won't have be under your control? It's their arrogance and not submitting to your authority. It's real, simple. This is the most important advice we can give our beloved brothers and sisters like me raising children. Rearing, I should say, children. They need to submit Hupotage doesn't mean under control. It means submit to the authority of. In my opinion, maybe it carries weight with you on this topic. I don't know. We're working on it. Working hard. My spanking muscles are getting stronger every day. I think that the, the behavior therapy stuff is satanic. I think the idea that we're going for certain behaviors and that that's what we're after and without respect to the person's moral development and who they are in their soul. In other words, I think what we're going for in our correction is submission is attitude, not behavior. Behavior follows attitude. Go to the source. Don't do the symptoms is my advice. And there are ways that you will address behaviors to get to attitude, but understand the goal. If you get a correction and the kid says, okay, yes. Or in my case, my kids, yes, sir. And they're not being submissive. We haven't accomplished what we're after yet. The, the engagement isn't yet over and it sometimes is a war, but I'm, believe me, I'm not being warlike. We just have to hold the line. This is a hard thing, but it's the attitude we're going for that they submit, that their children be in submission with all dignity. But if anyone does not ha know how to lead his own household, that same word proestami again, if he doesn't know how to lead his own household, how will he care for the church of God? That's your aside in the New American Standard in parentheses. Now, I don't know of anybody that's perfect at this, and I'm especially talking about myself, but I know that this is the standard. This is the expectation, and I thank you all for your prayers. When we came here to Connecticut, we had two cats and two dogs, and they are all now in glory. Great animals. Since arriving here, we now have six sons. A lot of work. I have to confess to you that I don't always see this. 
and submission with all dignity, but I'm always engaging toward that. And eventually we get to it. It's the standard. They are well aware of this passage. They understand this is the, that they have to choose this. And I have to tell you these boys, while we're being personal, they are uh, so excited about coming back here. They're glad for the time to get to know and be with their grandmother. And that's been a real blessing that, that they've been able to do that. But they are very anxious to come back here. They've visited churches. They've sung the 7-Eleven choruses. They are ready to sing our blood tunes on our blood pipes, as they once said. They're ready to sing and be with you and, and be who we are because they love it. And um, I know it's mutual, but, um, but this, is, this is a huge lift. When I came to this church, I didn't have kids. You didn't have a way to judge me. Like, well, the dog's not misbehaving. So it uh, seems like good to go. It's a constant battle. We do not give our children to the culture. We will not give our children to the culture. We will absolutely, under no circumstances, have the state determine what to do with our kids. And I hope you all understand, I came here with no kids. Once I got them, I had a new priority. We are not sanguine about the prospects of Connecticut and parental rights in the coming near future. And I hope you all understand that you won't see my taillights until that becomes an issue. And then y'all come with us. We will not give our kids to the state. And I ask you to pray for us about that because we make sacrifices, big ones, so that we won't. So that, because it's not, we just can't. What might've made more sense 20 years ago no longer exists. And I grew up in public school, but my mom was on me constantly. I know as, as many of you were on your children, as evident today. But the, the culture we're in today, absolutely not. We're not going to um, reformat them against God for half or more than half the day and then try to undo that in the other half of the day. It's too much work. We'll just work on them ourselves. So please be in prayer for us about this. This is a team lift. This is a heavy lift. Your church family, you are working with us on this. I don't believe every, every, uh, what is it, every, every child needs a village or some nonsense. But I think God allowed us to pick those with whom we would associate. And we thank you for your care for our children. And uh, do ask your continued prayers. If anyone does not know how to lead his own household, how will he care for the church of God? He's not to be a neophyte. That's the Greek here as we close. Neophyton is neophyte. You, you gardeners know what that is. That's a newly planted sapling. It needs to be a, he has, needs some rings in the, in the wood in that tree, not a newly planted tree because he's going to fall over. Newly planted, what happens? He not because of being conceited back to submission. See, the, the, the children need to submit to the authority of their parents. So this neophyte is a child in the faith and he'll become arrogant and fall into the judgment of the devil who fell because of his arrogance. And I don't know if you've ever seen a pastor fall because of arrogance. I have. It's ugly because arrogance is incapable of seeing itself. Of course, I see my arrogance. Don't worry about it. But, um, <laughs> but we should all be, always be looking for it. We should always be asking about it and checking ourselves. And the last verse of our study this morning, but it's necessary for him also a good witness to have from those outside. So this is how you treat inside. Now let's talk about how he is manifested to those outside. He has a good witness. 
so that not into he will fall <laughs> into the reproach and the snare of the devil. Sorry about that. So that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. I just went ahead with English order there because the Greek is too convoluted for English. He will not fall into the reproach and snare of the devil is the goal. So he's got to have humility on the inside. And then he's got to have a good witness with those on the outside because of that same problem, the attack of the enemy. Beloved, the closing remark here is, um, it's all about the gospel. Everything we've said is an honor and a glory to God. That's the whole purpose of all of it. Thanks for taking a little extra time with me on a challenging passage. And remember that when you're having trouble raising your kids, the problem is that they need to submit to the authority of their parents. You are God's person in authority. Once you say it, it is now God's will for them. And I mean nothing less than that. You better say it right. But once you say it, it's what God wants for them because they're supposed to submit to authority. And if, if we don't learn it, if they don't learn it, they'll never learn it. Not from us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this eternal life, for the children you've given us and the challenge and training them up. Thank you for all the parents here who are so invested in the training and elevating of their children that they're glorifying you and making disciples. Father, strengthen those kids to see the example in their parents before they're grown, before they're old. Help them see the wonderful witness in what their moms and dads are doing so that they adopt that for themselves at an early age and don't waste their lives. Father, we, want to, we don't want to see a bunch of lag time with our young adults. We want to see them get serious about you and about your word and living this life you've given us. Don't let us waste time. Most of all, Father, we want to glorify you by being part of your work and bringing many sons to glory. You're in charge of the harvest. We ask that you'd make it plentiful and let us be part of it. We ask it in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen.